am George Knapp listening to that UFO podcast and having one hell of a good time. Diana, so oh, here we are in part two. It's the future uh, for those who listened uh, a little bit later on, okay? Um, you mentioned earlier David Grush, and I think it's a nice place to kind of bring in that David Grush story. Um, it's carried on at pace since the hearings back in July. He made worldwide headlines with what he said, crashed craft, biologics, all those kind of big statements. Does your research, your work, your conversations with your own contacts and network lead you to believe what David Grush is saying is not only true, but that he has seen what he said? Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Um, I don't doubt him one bit. Um, I mean, I myself was at a, you know, alleged crash site. So, uh, and in fact, I even wrote an essay uh, that where I discussed biologics that were being studied by somebody affiliated. Uh, So I guess that, but that was, you know, that was what, 2016 or 17. And that was before these headlines were made. And so, of course, I wouldn't doubt him at all because I know know that it's, you know, I know that the people that he's talking to, I know those kinds of people, if not the people. Um, And of course, I believe him. Absolutely. So let's move on to the listeners' questions, okay? So from Kendra McMahon, a lot of these are from Patreon, then onto YouTube, and some from emails as well. Kendra asks, uh, she would love to hear your thoughts on the theory. Some of these encounters with beings and the reason they don't make themselves publicly known is that they are, are they are our creators or work for our creators. And you may have touched on that, but if you could just embellish, please. Right. So, you know, that we are like, um, we've been created by yeah. these well, strength. I mean, yeah. Okay. So this is not something new. Um, you know, this religion began, uh, and I have a colleague named Stephen Finley, who's actually written a book about this religion. Uh, the nation of Islam in the United States uh, was created in way before the 1940s. Um, and basically the idea there is that there, there are these uh, scientists who are ET scientists who created humans um, and uh, were the creation of, of these um, beings who will come back in UFOs um, at the end of time, which they believe is now because of the sightings and the news and everything like that. So this isn't this isn't just kind of something that we hear today. This is something that we that has been heard a lot with respect to UFO belief systems. Um, that said, there's also the myth of Prometheus. So Prometheus is a Greek god Titan, actually. Okay, he's so he's like a a proto god who in various iterations of the myth, he either gives us technology in the form of fire and helps us learn how to utilize, you know, fire and thus, you know, create civilizations that we know of today. Um, Or he also creates humans. He creates us. Okay, and then also kinds of trains us into how to use this kind of thing. So, you know, so these ideas that we were created by these hum- these uh, non-human intelligences um yeah this is something that's that i would call it a st- like a standard motif in in the not just the ufo belief systems but in belief systems around the world uh, certain tribes here in north america indigenous tribes uh believe they're from star people star nations 
Peter Earnshaw uh, is a listener who's getting a bit of notoriety for the number of questions he's been sending in, but they're very much appreciated, Peter. He's on the Discord channel as well. So I've cut it down from his 45 questions. Well, it was four down to two. Um, Peter says, and similar to what you mentioned there, in a way, current events highlight how religious beliefs are a catalyst for conflict, regardless of the key messages in each religion of tolerance, love and the sanctity of life. Does Diana believe that a non-human intelligence may also be in contact, uh, conflict with each other through their own religious beliefs with Earth as a catalyst and maybe battleground? Okay, so um, would there be warring ETs? Yeah. ETs that war with each other. Um, yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of scenarios that we have about contact. And one of the scenarios that comes up most, in fact, I would call it the most... Um, interesting scenario. I wouldn't call it the most interesting, but I would call it the scenario that I get a lot from like uh, people who are say academics and, you know, people that I talk to and they say that, well, you know, if we do, if we are in contact uh, with another intelligent species, that's non-human and say from another galaxy or something like that, it's not going to be good for us. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be bad because they most likely have intentions of, you know, utilizing us or uh, they, a lot of times they reference that twilight zone called to serve man. I don't know if you know that one, but it's a, it's a pretty freaky episode. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a kind of colonial narrative right there. Right. So of course we would, you know, colonialists ourselves would then say, Oh, absolutely. You know, that's going to happen. That would be what it, what it's like. Um, so, you know, we naturally ascribe to something we don't know about traits that we ourselves have. Um, is that something that I consider, uh, I mean, I have heard, of course, so many different things about aliens and ETs and, you know, the relationships that they have, there are a variety of them uh, some people say. So I have to really be careful because, you know, like I said, um, like I've said, my position is neither belief nor disbelief. I have to hold that position just because I'm in the position that I am where, you know, I'm, I'm writing some books, I'm an academic. And I do know that people would want me to spread some kind of information. So information could be given to me, but I have heard that some um, a lot of actually scientists believe that, yes, there a lot of the, uh, if there, there are probably a variety or some think that there are a variety of these, you know, interactions and they, they don't necessarily seem um, amicable with each other, I guess you'd say, but whether I believe that or not, I, I don't take a position. You mentioned that colonial idea, and I wonder if tomorrow, per se, we discovered a commercial form of a warp drive, and all of a sudden, all the kind of big aerospace companies started firing off in different directions into space, and we come across another planet that has intelligent life, but say it's only developed as far as our kind of caveman days. How do you think we as a species now would, would interact with that species in its early development, and do you think we would essentially colonize that planet and use its resources? Do you think we would do that? Andy, I think we would do that. I mean, I think that we've done that and we're doing that now. 
And I think that, you know, that's why a part of the the book encounters is also an examination of um, how we treat each other, you know, as humans. And it was really eye-opening for me to get into the UFO world and to see the organization that our government has used to misinform about UFOs to the point where I was fairly depressed about it because I recognized, wow, you know, <laughs> what can I believe now? Yeah. Um, so it brought me back to philosophy and looking at some of the texts like, you know, the allegory of the cave and the Plato's Republic, you know, can we have a just society? These kinds of questions. And, um, and I, re- I learned a lot. So, you know, you can be a lot older and learn a lot of stuff still. And I have. And what I learned was that um, it could very well be that the societies that we've developed in the West, here are our societies, and, you know, even maybe in the East, I'm, I'm not going to extrapolate all. I'm just saying that the, the society I grew up within, um, as, you know, as as lucky as I feel here in it, I also see the injustices, right? And I also have learned a lot uh, about people who've spoken about these kinds of things. And it could very well be that Plato, you know, in Allegory of the Cave, uh, he's, you know, paraphrasing Socrates. He's basically saying that there's no just society, you know? And that the only kind of just society is going to be a society of, of uh, like where he pr- proposes is a dialectic, which is like a mystical sangha. And that's and I'm mixing religious traditions here, but the sangha in Buddhism is the community that you have where you can discuss these kinds of things that we're discussing. You're asking me a pretty important question: Would we colonize, you know, this this less advanced, you know, ET? planet um based on precedent of our actions i'd say that yes we probably would do that would all of us do that no i think that there were some of us who wouldn't do that so we've got to think about that you know we've got to think about the society that we we live within and um and our own position within that so i guess that's a complicated question because there's no yes or no answer it's it depends on who finds them, right? Mm. If it's the US government that finds them, then it looks like there will, and they happen to have resources that our government wants. Yes, indeed, that's going to happen. But if it's kind of like a uh, a rogue bunch of, say, techie entrepreneurs that are not interested in doing that, then maybe not, you know? So, um, so I guess the, it's a complicated question that I'm, I'm, st- I'm always thinking about those kinds of things. I always think about. And Peter follows up Diana with, uh, do you believe that disclosure, whether it was full or partial is a good idea for humanity overall? Okay. So that's a really good question because I opened the book by talking about communities that believe that we, that disclosures already happened. And even folks that I know who are orchestrating this disclosure, what we could call, you know, this active, more transparency within the U.S. government. I've heard some of them even say, you don't need a government to tell you that that there are these things that happen. A government doesn't need to tell you that. 
do you think that's true of the UFO community though? Because obviously I've heard that. I've had people say that on the podcast. Lou Elizondo sat on this and every other podcast and said the same thing. But for the UFO community, yes, we know that. But for the 99.9% of the general populace, they do need an official body like a government to come out and say these things happen. Yeah, so we've had that, but it doesn't really make a difference. So, okay, so what I'm saying is that I've taught, you know, I talk to my students and my students say, first of all, they seem to be pretty sick of UFO news right now. And they say that it doesn't impact my life at all. Like, you know, unless it's, it's something that actually impacts my life, I'm not going to believe that it matters. Mm-hmm. So I think that like a lot of people are just living paycheck to paycheck or even worse than that, just trying to survive. So, you know, UFOs is that, I mean, it's a weird thing to say. UFOs, they're not on their radar, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're not interested because it's not impacting them at all. Yeah. My, my wife takes that position. Even I do this and she's like, do you know what? Tomorrow there's still jobs to be done. The kids need dropped at school. You know, we have to go and do the food shop and yeah, and all that stuff. So, and that's the same way that people talk about disclosure being this paradigm shifting moment for the planet. There's still families using food banks, still genocides going on. You would still drive your petrol car to work the next day. Your boss would still expect you in. And yeah, I think for me, that would be a fascinating aspect of and I mean, true disclosure, as in we have an official confirmation of a non-human entity visiting us, interacting with us, whatever that may be, like a proper one, that what happens the next day? That's is every, right. Is everyone at home? Are we all watching the news? Or is your boss phoning you to say, Diana, are you coming in today? You know, you had a lecture this morning and you're like, well, aliens landed yesterday. And they're like, yeah, but, you know, half nine, people are waiting on you. Life goes on, doesn't it? It definitely does. Um, and, you know, I can... Uh, tell you from my own life. So, you know, I've been teaching at this university for 21 years and I'm, I know a lot of people there and these people are people that I've known for a long time. We're friends. Okay. They know what I've been doing. They've like, you know, kind of been a little bit following what I've been doing. I've been the chair of the department and we have department meetings every month. And I go, and then I go like about two months ago and everybody in the department's like, so what UFOs are actually real? They ask me this and I go, oh uh, yeah, yeah. And then we just get on with the department meeting. Yeah. Yeah. I've, <laughs> I've had that as well in work. So what's actually happening and it depends on the person, how far the conversation goes. I usually yeah. like to, I usually lead with the, what if they're coming from not too far away? And usually their reaction from that point decides if the conversation stops there or or carries on. But it's a pretty interesting conversation to have with people. Um, On that, this one's maybe more personal to you and asking for some advice. This is from Stacey. Stacey asks, what should an ordinary person do if they find themselves face-to-face with the phenomenon? Diana has spoken in previous interviews of saints who became ill from encounters with angels. Hypothetically, what would Diana do if a ball of light appeared five feet away from her? Okay, so knowing what I do know now, um, I try to avoid places where there would be a ball of light, okay? And I know that a lot of times you can't do that. And the reason I say that is because the people who I've talked to talk about the hitchhiker effect, I actually believe in them, okay? I believe that that actually happens. Um, I don't think that you'd want to be in a position where that comes back with you to your family. Um, So... I tend to, if, you know, somebody says that there's high orb activity at their house or, you know, that they're having these things, um, 
this is this is my position now. Now my position has changed, all right, throughout the years of doing the study, but my position now is this, is that when you look at traditional communities, communities that are either indigenous or um, communities that have been religious for a long time, right? So um, you're talking about, you know, um, maybe um, here in the South, you know, you have people who have been practicing since the 1700s, a particular form of Christianity or something like that. So they already have within their infrastructure kinds of the ways to deal with these things that appear like either in the sky or orbs or even night visions and things like that, you know, uh, disturbances in the night and things like that. And they have ways to deal with them. And I know this because I've done the research in my purgatory book on, you know, nuns that had orb sightings and things like that and how the community dealt with that. So it appears that a lot of these traditional ways of dealing with this stuff, they actually work. So unless you're hooked into a community like that and you're just a person who has no religious, you know, affiliation, you're not indigenous, you know, and you're just kind of, this is happening to you. Um, in that case, if it's just happening to you and you have no community where you can, you know, go and say, and even in some Christian communities, you know, we've heard this from like, you know, Chris Bledsoe or someone like that, you know, had an experience, went to his Christian community and they said, this, these are demons, you know, you need to, you know, this is very bad for you. Um, you know, you do have to have people that are, that they're not going to blame you for having this experience because that does happen and you get stigmatized. So say you're confronted with this type of thing. Um, yeah. So, okay. I, let me just say that a lot of therapists have reached out to me um, and said that they have been, you know, they have clients who have, then they do not know how to deal with it. Okay. So they just don't know how to deal with it. Um, and that's where I tell them, well, you know, indigenous cultures and religious cultures, they do know how to deal with this. So I would suggest to, it's Stacy. Is yeah. it? Okay. Stacy. Okay. Stacy. Um, first off, if you, if you or your parents or, you know, your family, extended family have, uh, resources, like I've just talked about, you know, um, tell, tell a trusted person you know, in your extended community. Um, if that's not the case, um, then I think, um, you see, I haven't had this question before, Andy. It's really a, actually a very difficult question to answer. Um, without that, I would say that um, I don't know how to, how, I mean, I maybe it won't happen again, but if it's something that continues to happen, I think that you're going to have to uh, reach out to, a therapist who's trained in this type of of thing. The only other suggestion I would even add to that would be, I know you're uh, taking part in the uh, James Ian Dolly and J. Christopher King um, Expo in New York. And oh, they, right. yeah, they're yeah. part of the Experiencer group as well. Um, and I know they've had many folks reach out to them that have been on the podcast or, or, or got in touch with me to ask what to do and the events of having experiences. So speaking to maybe like-minded folks as well, but always like diana said i would recommend a professional too but yeah if that's not always handy speaking to someone else of a similar mindset maybe that'll maybe that'll help yes yes yeah 
Um, Peter Whitehead, or oh, sorry, from Bobby. Bobby asks, does Diana think the phenomenon coexists with us on its own terms, that it has a relationship with us that is purpose- purposefully kept at a distance, yet interaction is allowed in certain circumstances? In short, their knowledge of us is far more expansive than ours of them. Absolutely, I think that. Um, part of the reason I think that is because I'm with Jacques Vallée in looking at this as kind of like almost like a meta-intelligence um, that seems to, uh, you know, s- seems to have a, uh, a like almost like a feedback loop with us, right? So, um, and if it's not, if we don't call it, say, UFOs, like we call it today, UFOs or UAPs, if you look at experiences of, say, Virgin Mary sightings, you also see similar kinds of things happening, like, you know, that this experience happens to communities. Um, and then the the things that are told to the people are very specific types of things that uh, would uh, change the communities in ways that help actually the communities, believe it or not. Um, question from Peter Whitehead. Peter asks, uh... Thanks, Andy. Uh, You're welcome. Um, American Cosmic makes plenty of analogy to Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Not a question as such, but uh, Peter wonders if you, Diana, have ever read Michael Benson's Space Odyssey, The Making of 2001. And it's got a very surprising account of Kubrick and Clark's joint UFO sighting in Manhattan early on in the project. No. Okay, I'm definitely going to look at this. The making of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, Michael Benson. So he said there's a, a surprising account of a UFO sighting that may have influenced that. So yeah, yeah that's one for you and the listeners as well. Um, the Tree of Life asks, uh, in some modern accounts, experiencers suffer from health issues seemingly related to radiation exposure. In ye olden times, did accounts of encounters with angels or deities ever produce similar results? Flash burns to the eyes, hair loss, skin rashes, etc. Thank you in advance. Uh, yes. So this is one of the things that I uh, actually did uh, when I met Gary Nolan. Um, and while we were in New Mexico... Uh, the day before we went to the site, he shared a lot of his research with me. So I got to see a lot of the, you know, uh, the effects of the, basically the effects with uh, these craft, I guess we'll just call them crafts. Um, And it was terrifying. And in fact, yes. So if you do look back at the historical records, like part of what I was doing at the Vatican was I was looking for these uh, references to these effects, you know, which are not nice effects, you know, um, and they they look like they intentionally or not, you know, could be collateral damage. Uh, Gary tends to think of it as collateral damage, but it doesn't look like they're intentionally trying to harm people, but people are being harmed. Um, I've also had a lot, and yes, we do see this in days of yore, okay? So, so in a lot of the uh, archives in days of yore. Um, we see this in a lot of the, um, now, of course, people send me a lot of information from all over the world, and I've talked to a lot of people who've had experiences. And um, a couple of people have said that they regularly see craft in the sky, and, you know, they look, they look at them and say, they said that a lot of times their eyes burn. Okay. Their eyes are burning. And so I asked some of the scientists that I work with, you know, what's this about, you know, what's going on? And they're saying that their corneas are being um, impacted by the, the type of light 
that they're being exposed to. So they said, don't tell them not to look at them. <laughs> so that was their advice. You mentioned just earlier in, in talking that uh, we'll call these craft. Is there something else you would refer to them as? Well, we just don't know exactly what they are, right? So um, I, I say call them craft because we that's what we call them today. So, um, but, you know, what are they? I mean, do they they seem to morph into different things also when when people see them, they become different things. That's an aspect actually that I get into in encounters that when people see these things that then we can identify objectively say on radar or on our sensing devices um, and then that corresponds to these people's experiences. If you go around and you, you know, you have all these people that they don't even know each other and they're not even the same area, but they see, they've seen the same thing that we can like say, okay, this has been going, you know, we see this is it's in the sky. Um, they see different things and, but they look like they're the same thing. They just appear differently to people or people interpret them differently. We don't know yet how you know what what's going on there yeah um question from ultra if you think about the spanish and other colonizers wiping out entire civilizations with smallpox um could there is the reticence to the others um or the interaction with them be to do with biosecurity exposure to an alien type virus or flu yeah so when astronauts come back from space of course they have to go through this period of um being completely I would just call it process of, they call it a briefing or, you know, that debriefed, uh, a process of disinfection because of potential things that can be brought back that could very well, um, you know, cause what, what uh, she's referring to. Absolutely. Uh, so yes, I think that um, that's definitely something that when I, when I um, talk to people who work with astronauts or work in the space programs, and um, this is something that it, it is considered heavily, right? Just to start wrapping up, because I don't want to take up too much more of your time, Diana, because you do have a life, I believe as well. So, uh, and it's fireworks night or the day before here in the UK. So loads of fireworks oh. going off. If people can hear the bangs in the background, uh, potentially it's, it's popped a few times on the mic. Um, but last few things, just one of the listeners, Ben, said uh, he's got uh, encounters on pre-order. Can't wait to listen to it. Um, similarly on that, Travis Calhoun said, what was the experience like narrating your own audiobook for Audible? Okay, so I was very interested in learning how to do that. So I did choose to narrate it. And at first, I mean, it was um, it was really interesting to read my own book because, you know, I've read my own book, obviously. I wrote it and then, you know, edited it. Uh, but to read it was completely different. And there were parts in the book where it was emotional for me to read. And I had to stop and kind of compose myself and then uh, get through, you know, doing it. So I did the best I could. And, um, and I guess, um, you know, and like I said, I learned a lot through the experience. And uh, part of the reason why I wanted to narrate the book was because I, what I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, put out a series of, um, I don't know if there'll be like podcast episodes or, or um, audio books about the, about different uh, ufologists and, you know, and what they've contributed and what they've done and kind of like do summaries so people don't have to read the summaries like a cliff notes. I don't know if you have cliff notes, Andy, yep. you know, kind of like little summaries of, um, 
you know, what does Jacques Vallée think? Um, you know, what has Gary Nolan done? Um, you know, some ufologists that people don't know about, you know, there are women ufologists that uh, don't get recognized, you know, talk about them. And so I'd like to do that. And so that's why I wanted to learn how to narrate the book. Awesome. And um, final question from Kelly Blodgett. And uh, Kelly's been a longtime supporter and listener to the podcast. Do you believe the identity of the grey man and encounters will be revealed at some point in the future? Um, I always have to assume, just like I do with American Cosmic, that all identities will be known. Um, the reason why we keep um, the, you know, it, I basically respect their need and desire to be anonymous, but I have also told every single person from American Cosmic on, um, you can use this, you know, pseudonym, but we're talking about ufologists. They're some of the best researchers on earth. You will be known. <laughs> uh, awesome. And sorry to anyone else who I couldn't get to your questions. We'll keep those for next time as well. And there was a lot that came in. I just want to finish off, Diana, asking about stuff that's coming up for you and then obviously how people can get a hold of the book because when this goes out the book will be released um the Sol foundation is something that is coming up i believe the 17th and 18th of november is that correct yes can you just talk a little bit about the Sol foundation who's involved and what your part is in it yeah sure so um gary um i always knew gary was going to create a foundation to study this uh topic of UAPs. And finally, he did. He created it with Peter Scafish. And uh, Chris Mellon, I think, uh, is a partner. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but he's involved in, in certain respects. So um, what I've been doing since American Cosmic came out is I've been a peer reviewer for humanities and social scientists who are writing about UAP. And so Gary asked me if I would be the person who would take that advisory role for their foundation and basically, um, you know, vet people who are coming in and, you know, look at their methodologies and so forth and see what kind of contributions they could make. So that's my role. I'm also going to be talking at the inaugural event, which is in a few weeks. And I'm really looking forward to that. Um, partially because of I spent a lot of my youth there in that Palo Alto area. My grandparents uh, grew, uh, lived there and had their businesses there. So um, so I really enjoyed going back and seeing family and such. But also, um, I just really love, um, you know, talking to the people that are going to be there. It's going to be a really good time. And just before then, Dr. Gary Nolan should be coming on the podcast to discuss it. We're just trying to work out a date right now to get Gary back on. He's a very busy man, as, as people will know, um, not only in the UFO field, but he does a lot of really important work outside of that as well. Um, and also, uh, Diana, finally, the book obviously is available from the 7th of November. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And it, it's available at anywhere that books are sold, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, um, and I just want to point out that some of that, I just have three, um, I have a website, dwpasolka.com. I have an Instagram account, which I just started to kind of share some of my um, Vatican stuff, um, dwpasolka. And I also have a Twitter account that's also dwpasolka. Um, and that that some sites have actually uh, did, are not me, like americancosmic.com they'll ask you to buy Bitcoin and that's not my site. So uh, <laughs> okay. just be aware of that. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, that's fine. I'll put the links for all your actual stuff, Diana, in the description to the podcast. Um, Folks, I've obviously been very fortunate to get a copy of the book in advance. It's fantastic. I recommend you do the same. I'll also be getting the Audible version of the book because I quite like to hear it from the author's point of view as well. Um, I don't know if, like Ross Coulthart, you do impressions of people too, um, but I'm sure either way it's going to be good. No, I'm not going to be doing the Australian impressions. (laughs) Right, okay, cool. No, but uh, very much look forward to that, Diana. Listen, it's been wonderful speaking with you. Encounters is out from the 7th of November. If you're listening to this early on any of the paid platforms, go ahead and pre-order it now, no matter where you are on the world, and let us know what you think of it too. But Diana, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Andy. Take care. That is all for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. Apple and Spotify do make a huge difference to the algorithm. If you're checking the show on YouTube, please don't forget to like and leave a comment on here as well. Any sharing you do is very much appreciated on any social media platform. And finally, you can listen to shows ad-free and sponsor-free in their glorious full versions by subscribing for less than the price of a coffee on Apple, Spotify, just search That UFO Podcast Premium. YouTube, you can sign up and be a member or you can do that through patreon.com. Thank you very much for listening, folks. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoke.